The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of weight loss. Weight loss again? Well, with COVID, lots of us have gained the COVID kilos. We go deep with dietitian Claire Ward. Claire opens up about her online weight loss course, a course she has specially developed for people having weight loss surgery. She shares a heap of tips with us on weight loss, whether you are thinking of having weight loss surgery or not. Why do we gain weight? Why are so many of us carrying excess kilos? Midlife weight gain. Why does this happen to us ladies? What is considered acceptable? How long should a woman wait to fall pregnant after weight loss surgery? When and how is the best way to get weighed? Within your menstrual cycle? Within your day? Why does our hair fall out after weight loss? Are frozen meals okay? Claire talks carbohydrates and why we really should not be scared of them. Should you think twice about giving up dairy if you're trying to trim down? And why maybe you should not reach for those instant oats? Now, did you know that not all dietitians are experts in weight loss, and particularly weight loss with surgery? Which brings me to Claire. Claire Ward is an accredited practicing dietitian and accredited sports dietitian. She has been practicing for over 20 years after completing her master's in nutrition and dietetics from Sydney University way back in 1999. She has provided nutritional support to those all over the world, spending time in the UK, Sydney, and now living in Central West New South Wales. Claire has completed many additional courses in disordered eating and is a trained clinician from the Australian Centre of Feeding and Eating Disorders, where she gains skills in nutritional psychology and counselling. She also has completed her sports dietetic course at the Australian Institute of Sport, and she utilises these skills to help people improve their body composition, reduce body fat mass, and maintain gain muscle mass. Claire now lives and works in Orange, New South Wales, where she is the Director of Ward Nutrition. She runs a busy practice, servicing many bariatric, that is weight loss, surgeons from Sydney, Orange, and Dubbo. She has developed the complete bariatric online course, which is the A to Z of nutrition and bariatric surgery. She has developed her own frozen food range, For clients who have had bariatric surgery, these are prepared by a chef and nutritionally designed by Claire to help make life easier for her local bariatric clients. And don't we love easy? She's a member of Nutrition Plus, which is a group of leading dietitians focusing on women's health. 80% of clients having weight loss surgery are women and 40% of them are at a childbearing age. So it's no wonder that Claire has a special interest in helping these women prepare their bodies post-bariatric surgery for pregnancy. I hope you enjoy our chat. Claire Ward, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me to join um, your wonderful series. I love your podcast. Thank you. I love your bariatric course. Uh, Would you be able to uh, describe to our listeners what exactly you've got going on there online? 
Yeah, so um, over COVID, um, I, you know, I thought, well, you know, I need to do something that's going to um, still encourage people to get their knowledge um, and understand um, everything that's required from bariatric surgery and weight loss. It's such a specialised area, but it is increasing um, in, I suppose, Australia. Like, we have about 50,000 people a year now that actually have bariatric surgery, and it's quite big. And what I find, because I live out in um, in Central West, um, and I do service a lot of doctors from Sydney through to Dubbo to Orange area, but people live out as far as Toba, Lightning Ridge. They don't have access to information or to the facilities, so... I kind of designed this course that they could do online and what I also find is that even though I sit in a consult with someone and I'll go through everything in you know much detail, they often forget half of it, you know, and so well, the benefit of the course is that they can go back and re-listen and re-listen. Yeah, so this course goes from, you know, someone who's thinking about having surgery, right to someone's about five years post-surgery. So whatever section you're in, whether you you know, thinking about it, have already seen your doctor and it's definitely going ahead, whether you're two months post, whether you're one year post or whether you're four years post. Um, there's something on the slide, on the, uh, I suppose, the presentation for anyone. So, um, so it just goes through recipes, meal plans, things to watch out for. Um, you know, it's got even do a bit of a nutritional um, counseling through there as well. Um, just get people to think about certain things like mindful eating, um, the diet versus non-dieting, how much they should be having in regards to protein and carbs and, and that does depend on what level you're at post-surgery. So I do, that's why I break it up into its four different sections. Um, yeah, so hopefully it's a valuable course for everyone. And I've had a few clients of mine who actually see face-to-face, but they've gone on and done the course as well. And they said they gained even more knowledge from that. So that's been really positive feedback um, from myself, So which has been good. Um, I've, li- I've looked at it, as you know, and I actually think yeah. that people who um, – aren't even entertaining bariatric or weight loss surgery would greatly benefit from doing your course because um, there are so many useful tips in it, especially the the, the bits about uh, why people are overweight, why they struggle to maintain their weight. And the bit that I love that you did was about reading food labels. Yes. Yeah, so especially when someone's about 12 months post-surgery, like when someone's 12 months post-surgery, they've kind of, the surgery's done its job, you know, the surgery has its effect. But from being 12 months post-surgery, it's no different from not even having surgery, I suppose. So you're looking at that long-term lifestyle changes that need to take place. And, yeah, those points that you picked up, um, yeah, essentially that's something that someone who even even had surgery could actually go in and and do that section of it, which is, you know, and it's got the meal plans and fantastic recipes with it as well. So you could, you know, I suppose put it all into your lifestyle um, and about how much you should be eating and what sort of food groups as well. Can you go through with us, uh, you know, just a simple list, if you can, of why people mm. are overweight? Why do why did people gain mm. weight? Why are so many of us carrying excess kilos? That is such a good question, and this is a question I get very often. Um, people, like people. People gain weight for different reasons, and I like to put it into different categories. So you've got, you know, um, the physiological reasons. So you, there is clinical reasons why people gain weight, um, and that's when we look at different hormones that are in the body, such as leptin or ghrelin. So leptin, for people that don't know, is like a hormone that plays a role in like regulating like your energy expenditure and appetite. And the thing is, with people who are overweight and very overweight, is that you know, well. You, 
For, for a standard person, you have this leptin in, in, in your, your adipose tissue, so your fat tissues, and as we eat, um, we get more, and we, we, get, we get more of this leptin. So technically speaking, that should tell us to stop eating. However, with someone who has what we call leptin resistance, um, that's caused when a person's you know, body fat, they, they reach a point, but they can no longer cope anymore. So the body still produces this leptin, however, the leptin's not working effectively to control the appetite, so therefore they still get hungry, so therefore they still eat. Um, and that, that can have a big impact on someone who's overweight. And then you have the ghrelin side as well. Now, ghrelin is a hormone that's produced in the stomach, um, and it's a hunger hormone. So when people have this surgery, essentially that's what the surgery takes care of is that sort of clinical side, which is great, and that helps. However, there's also the psychological side, and that's a bit where, as a dietitian, I really try and focus on. So I allow the surgeons to do their job and help with the whole leptin, ghrelin, insulin resistance, I let them take care of that side of it, and then I work more on the um, the psychological side. And then, you know, I look at why people are actually overweight to begin with. And I actually ask them that question, so what do you think? Um, and often people do have an answer for me. They always say, oh, I eat a lot when I'm stressed, or, you know, what, I'm a shift worker. Uh, my lifestyle is all over the place. I don't know how to put it into practice. You know, because stress and lifestyle, emotional eating, habit are one of our, they're probably my most popular reasons why people are overweight. Um, but then I have people, you know, who feel, you know, have low self-esteem. Um, they feel like, you know, I might as well just eat because who cares anymore. Um, they have poor assertion as well and they've got different attitude traps, I call them. So they, you know, their friend was on this amazing diet and, you know, they read somewhere 10 years ago that this is what you had to do. Um, and they still believe it. Um, so they still have a bit of that faulty food script, I always call it. Um, but, you know, then we also have addiction process as well. Like food can be addictive. And, you know, we, we all acknowledge, you know, alcohol addiction, smoking addiction, and that people smoke to cope with stress. People smoke to, you know, cope with their lifestyle or whatever, um, or to have it. But food is actually the same. We can, you know, use food as a coping mechanism and unfortunately that produces weight, um, you know, but, you know, that's, that's a side effect of it. So, you know, I try and help people work through all these sort of reasons and I, I kind of use the bariatric surgery as a bit of a tool and that can actually help them lose weight. But while this is all happening, in that first 12 months, I try to work on clients' um, more psychological reasons about why they're overweight. So when the 12 months is up or 18 months is up and their surgery's kind of done its job and their grandma's starting to return and all that stuff, they actually have better tools um, to how to address um, their, their weight issues so it doesn't happen again. Um, obviously, there's all the nutrition part of that as well. Being a dietitian, of course, I do meal plans. Of course, I do all that. But I, I really feel that knowledge is one of the things that is only a very small percentage of why people are overweight. I, I don't spend half my time in the clinic telling people macros is full of fat and chocolate's not good for you. That's not where my, what I do in my clinic. Um, I focus more on, okay, look, I know you know that. It's, you know, it's not your fault that you're overweight, but there's definitely things in our lifestyle that we can um, change and work through um, to help prevent weight regain, um, which is, you know, with 40% of people regaining um, weight post-bariatric, it's quite high. But, you know, what I find that people who have this good nutritional counselling, good meal planning, have the skills to do things, they're not part of that 40%. They're the 60%. You know, so yeah, that's kind of yeah. I feel that like the reason for some everyone, everyone's reason is different. There's not one one reason. 
it's all mean multiple reasons. And there's definitely that clinical reason, but we can't forget the psychological reasons as well. So once someone's lost all their weight, they've attained their ideal weight set usually by their dietitian. If they regain, uh, why have they regained? What's the most common reason why why someone would struggle to maintain a healthy weight? Yeah, so when we look at regain, we always look at regain, like what's gaining one kilo is not a regain. And we always go to them, okay, just say you've lost 50 kilos and you regain, you know, somewhere between two to five kilos. That's okay. We would go, that's a bit of, you know, everyone fluctuates a few kilos here and there, you know, everyone's got their winter coat on, you know, Mm. so we always fluctuate. But if you start gaining more than that five, that's when we would call it a regain. What I find in my clinic when people regain, it's normally they go back to old ways. They normally go back to what they feel is easy. And they've been so, they've done that many diets in their life, it's been ridiculous. Like, honestly, if I, one of my first questions I say to people when I see them is like, what have you done before to try and lose weight? And they will rattle off 50,000 different diets, you know, more, more than I've even heard of, you know, so, and, I generally say to them, then, have any of them worked for you? And they always say, yes, they've worked while I've done them. And as mm. soon as I've stopped, I've regained. And that's a diet for you. A diet's all about restriction, restriction, restriction. And then when you go back to old ways, you regain. So I try to create their old ways a bit healthier ways, you know? Mm. Um, so rather than stick them on this really restrictive diet, I try and get on, get them to work on a meal plan, I suppose, that's going to fit in with their lifestyle. So they don't go back to their old way. So they, they, they say it's easy. So when clients walk in, they go, oh, that's really easy. I don't think I've lost any weight this week. I go, fantastic, because that's what I'm wanting to hear. Because normally they get on and they have lost weight. And weight loss is always a product of the good health, you know. So they're out, they're doing their own stuff. They're, they're kind of in their subconscious just doing things um, and eating healthy, and they don't even know they're doing it. And that's how I kind of like it to be because then I know it's going to be consistent and I know it's going to be long-term because they don't feel like they're on a diet, which means it's hard. Mm. In terms of weighing people though, especially when it comes to women, do you make sure, because this is what I do in my clinic, I'm not sure if it's right, but I'd like your opinion. I ask them where they are in their menstrual cycle and if they're in the luteal phase, so they're kind of in the week leading up to their period, I sometimes don't weigh them or if I do weigh them and they're one or two kilos uh, above what they would expect, I, I reassure them and say, well, it's kind of usual to have a bit of fluid um, you know, retention in this in this phase of your cycle. What do dietitians do? Yeah, very good question. So I actually have an in-body machine um, in my clinic, and so what this machine does, it's it, look, it's not as good as a DEXA. DEXAs are about a hundred percent accurate, as we know. These, the research shows, it's about ninety-eight percent accurate. But in a clinic situation, um, it's very practical, and this measures someone's fat, muscle, and fluid. So when they're about to get their period, then we all do get a bit of fluid retention. Um, I can actually see that on the scale anyway. So I can actually identify um, the muscle fat and fluid. And I don't actually encourage, encourage muscle loss and I don't encourage fluid loss. So I always look at the body fat. And that's when I try and get my clients to not focus on that total number because that total number could be very irrelevant. Um, you know, so the total number is just the total of what your body's made up of. And I suppose that goes back into, they always come in and go, oh, I'm so fat because I'm above the BMI. I'm not a big BMI fan. 
um, I really don't feel that these sort of clients um, do, you know, fit into the BMI because they are a different body structure, like bone structure, muscle structure, everything. And, you know, I have these people who come in who are 150 kilos and they're thinking they're going to get to 60 because that's what the BMI says they need to be. But they're, you know, like 100, you know, bit taller, they're, they're 55, you know, postmenopausal as well. You know, so there's all these factors that impact on someone's weight. It's not just how tall you are. Um, age, gender, you know, is a big one. Um, so what I can do in my practice is, yes, I look at their total weight, but I, I kind of don't put more attention on it. I probably put more attention on their body fat and trying to reduce their body fat down to a healthy level. Not about being skinny mini or being an athlete or anything like that. It's actually just getting them down to a level that's going to be health-wise great for their body. Um, so they're not going to get all the comorbidities or reduce their risk in comorbidities, I should say. So, you know, that's kind of what I focus on. And everyone's number amount of body fat is a little bit unique. Um, you know, but for women, you know, around 20, 25 grams of body fat is, you know, roughly okay. Um, you know, then if it's 30 that's also okay. When I see clients who are having barricade surgery, they're normally around the 60 to 70 um, kilos of body fat. So wow. just getting them down there, mm. yeah. Um, someone who's like a, you know, a 20-year-old athlete, they're probably around 10, you know, so even, even lower. And even my eating disorder clients, so I do see people at the other end as well, mm. um, I see them around about 5 or 6 kilos of body fat. So um, that can kind of give you a range that we can, we can see. So I really, I really focus on, on that body fat rather than focus on just losing weight because just losing weight, like I, I've seen so many pet times, like, probably they come back five years after surgery or they come back, you know, later and they go, oh, I've lost 20 kilos. I go, oh, that's great. But they're still 55% body fat. Mm. So that means it's just, you know, it's, 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 they're still struggling with their weight because their metabolism is still slow, you know. So um, I like it to get down to about the 30% body fat is kind of the ideal sort of level. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of, of BMI. I mean, it's a good kind of general observational tool, but... When someone's trying to lose a significant amount of weight, I, th I think a DEXA scan and an in-body scan are, are invaluable. I, I refer a lot for DEXAs and I've been thinking about an in-body scan, but that might be a bit expensive. I'll have to look into that one. Yeah, um, the in-body scans, <laughs> they are a little bit expensive, mm. but yeah. And look, you'll see some dietitians do have them. Um, not all dietitians have them in their practice. Um, yeah, because they are, yeah, all 15, 20 grand. <laughs> they are the everyday use. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely, um, you know, like a DEXA, you know, you need a big machine and everything can, yeah, it's a bit less practical. But yeah, look, they are, they are useful. And, and I think... I hate people jumping on the scales every day. Like it's a really, it's, a, it's such a mental game, you know, for anyone trying to lose weight. And you get on your scales, you know, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, and then you have your periods and then you'll see your, your weight will change. And they get so anxious about that, um, all my clients do. And I, I just try and tell them, you know, you don't need to jump on every day. You don't need to check if you've done a poo or done a wee or, you know, you've had a big lunch or you haven't had lunch. Because that's all you're really checking is fluid balance, you know, when you're jumping mm. on every day. 
Um, so I try and get him to go weekly or even fortnightly or even not at all. Um, <laughs> really trying to focus on how they feel um, with their weight loss. So you know you've lost weight. Like we all know when we feel a bit, oh, mm. God, you know, I've put on a bit of weight. We, we can feel it. Um, you know, then you start seeing it when you're about five kilos over. Mm. So, you know, you don't need a number to tell you have you been a good girl or a good boy or not. You know, the number doesn't decide that it's, it, it's part of that mental game, that number, I, I feel, with a lot of my clients. Mm. And do you recommend people weigh themselves in the morning as a standard? I think they weigh themselves consistently. So if the morning works for them on a Sunday morning, you know, then that's fine, you know. But if they're weighing themselves morning, night, different days, um, and then getting anxious about the different numbers, um, then that's what I don't recommend. So I think if you're going to be an afternoon weight that suits your lifestyle, then that's fine. Um, Then that's what you, you weigh yourself on. Um, and also even comparing scales, like if I had a dollar every time someone said, oh, I weighed myself my scales this morning and I was lighter, or I went to the doctor and my, my weight was this, oh, your scales, you know, make me heavier, um, you know, and I would go, every scale in the world would be different because every scale in the world would be calibrated differently. So it's important just to compare like for like, um, you know, not to worry about comparing scales, you know, there'll always be a kilo or two different or out or you know, no scale is better or worse, but it's just that they will be out because they're calibrated differently. So, um, yeah, not to get, I suppose, anxious about that. Because that anxiety, it just, it, it, it makes them, um, I suppose, go back to bad habits because they mm. then start throwing the towel in, you know. Mm. They just go, oh, it's not working. I might as well just, just get back to what I was doing. Yeah, have that gelato twice a day. I heard a patient recently who lost a bit of weight because she stopped eating gelato twice a day. <laughs> yeah, wow. wow. Yeah, no, wow. I love gelato, but yeah, twice a day is a lot. <laughs> Speaking of food, um, cooking skills. Do you yeah. find that you have to encourage people to learn the basic life skill of cooking? Yeah, do you know what? I'm finding in today's society, like I've been a dietitian for 20 years, so I've seen all the different, you know, I suppose as it comes through, how people come through. And one of my biggest things I'm finding at the moment in the last few years is that people people do have cooking skills. However, what a lot of people are trying to do is be Jamie Oliver, be Donna Hay. They're trying to be these beautiful chefs you know, um, who are fantastic and because they can't be like that, they tend to just throw the towel in and go, well, I'm also just going to get a Big Mac then, <laughs> you know. Um, they, their cooking skills are good and I, I'm trying to tell people just keep it simple. Let's go back to the simple things, you know, grilled piece of meat, bit of mash, um, you know, a bit of boiled veggies. You know, you don't need a lot of skills to be doing things like that, you know. Um, it's great to, to have fantastic recipes and it's great to to have the time to do these fantastic recipes but you know the Monday to Friday the midweek meals I find they don't have to be you know this five-star sort of stuff you know if you don't have the time if you've got the time god that's fantastic god bless you you know but if you don't have the time then don't don't beat yourself up about that and go okay let's get my three food groups in let's get a protein in because protein is super important Let's get a small amount of carbs or a lot of carbs pending your exercise level. And then let's get some veggies in. Now, if that's a broccoli or that's a bean or that's a carrot, it doesn't matter. You know, if that's a chicken or that's a beef, it doesn't matter. So I'm constantly trying to get people actually back to the basics in their cooking and not feeling like they have to actually, 
you know, go all in out and have all these different fancy items from the supermarket and put a bit of cheese eating and a bit of this and a bit of that. And <laughs> they don't have to be master chefs, you know, to, to have a good, complete, nutritious meal. Um, yeah, so I think their cooking skills, they, they do have them, but they don't realise they've got them. You know, a, a lot of people do know how to put a chicken schnitzel on the barbie. You know, they do know how to boil a mashed potato and, you know, they do know how to do things like that. So I try and get them to go back to that core, you know, of, of cooking. And when I tell them it's okay to be simple, they actually you see this sign of relief on their face going, oh, I thought I had to, you know, have all these fancy recipes and, um, you know, and I think that's just like media. It's just, you know, everyone posts all their beautiful things and which is great and they're all encouraging and, and, and I love to do those sort of cooking things as well sometimes. But, you know, at the end of the day, my kids tonight are having a beef stew with a bit of mash, you know. So mm-hmm. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that when it comes to nutrition. So who's your favourite chef on TV? Do you have one? Oh, I I don't have a favourite chef. Um, I I do like Donna Hay recipes. I do find Donna, I, don't, I like they're quite simple um, and they're a bit glamorous but simple. Um, so I do like, but I even like the Woman's Weekly ones. I think they're great too because I just think, oh, there's stuff you've got in your cupboard. Mm. And so, you know, I think they're, they're really handy to have. And I often get asked, Claire, do you got any recipes? And I go, yeah, great. What, who's your favourite chef? <laughs> That's exactly the question I ask them. I go, great. Well, don't get his, not mine, because I'm not a chef. <laughs> yeah. so I, I do give people recipes and stuff like that. But I, I, I do try and go back to the, the core food groups with people and getting them to think of that. So I like to educate my clients in nutrition rather than uh, demand and tell. Do you know what I mean? And you must cook an egg on Tuesday night and have this, you know? I kind of go, you know what, okay, let's work on, you know, what we need to put into a recipe and how much we need to eat. Because that's going to help more their weight long term than it is um, putting them on a very strict diet short term. And how about frozen meals? Are frozen meals good for us? If we don't have the time to cook or don't like cooking, are frozen meals good? Yes. Frozen meals can be good, but it does depend on the frozen meal. So I have seen some frozen meals where they're a bit out of balance. Um, so, you know, carbohydrates are generally a bit cheaper than meat. So you will find that some frozen meals are very heavy in the pasta or very heavy in the rice um, because they're just cheaper, you know. So, you know, when a company's manufacturing things, they, they, you know, put a bit more of that in and, you know, chicken and, you know, salmon and that's a little bit more expensive. So, yeah, frozen meals, um, from, if you have a well-completed frozen meal, um, then there's no reason why pressing zap in the microwave has has an issue, you know, like nutrients are zapped you know, at the end when it's frozen. So, you know, especially they just they're cooked, put straight in the freezer, you don't get a lot of nutrients um by by freezing and then you then you heat. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with frozen milk, um, as long as they're prepared right and they fit in with your lifestyle and they fit in with what your family's doing, then they become quite useful. Um, but yeah, I always say to my clients, you know, if you're if you're if you're stuck for time, we all are, then you know, rather than do a fast food that's probably, you know, not as nutritious, then maybe look into a frozen meal and then if you have if the frozen meal meat everything else in your lifestyle, um, taste and flavour, um, portions, everything, then there's nothing wrong with a frozen meal. Um, same goes with frozen vegetables. Like, you know, some people go, oh, I can't have a frozen vegetable because they're not as well, you know, there's not much nutrition in them. 
No, that's not necessarily true. I mean, I personally like fresh vegetables, but I like the crunch and, and I just like the flavour of a fresh vegetable over, over a, um, a flavour of a frozen vegetable. But it's only flavour. It's from a nutrition point of view, but they're exactly the same. Yeah, and it, a lot of it comes down to, I suppose, being able to read food labels and to know which frozen meals are better than others. And mm. uh, do you have any uh, quick resources people could go to, to to read more on food labels? Um, yeah, I do have a blog myself on my webpage, actually. So um, I did a little blog on frozen milk. Um, so they just go to um, orangedietitian.com.au and they just go to my blog section. Um, they will see a blog on our frozen meals good. And I just I just have my top tips there of what to look out for when you're choosing a frozen meal. Um, so depending what your requirements are will depend on, you know, what frozen meal company you, you, you do um, go through. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of different ideas there to, I suppose, look at and um, have, yeah, just to consider rather than just go and get anyone because there's so many out in the market. They're like, you know, it's that you do go into your, your, your frozen section of the supermarket, you'll find heaps of different meals. But, you know, you just need to know, you know, is there a good range or is there only two of them that have to eat the same thing every night? Are there preservatives and additives in there that, you know, maybe has put, been put in there? Because there's no reason for a frozen meal to have preservatives and additives because actually freezing it is mm. the preservation method. So there's no need for that. You know, um, is, is there a long shelf life or do I have to actually eat this in about a week and eat 10 of them? <laughs> so um, can you recycle a package if you're into recycling? Sometimes that can be a, a decider as well. Um, portion size is a big one. Will I eat it all or will I have to eat that then go and eat something else afterwards because it's way too small for me? And then that becomes really pointless if you've got to have two of them or very expensive. Um, so, and then sometimes there's a lot of wastage. Like I find with my bariatric clients, that's one of their hardest things is that they spend $10 on a meal and they eat like the meat part of it and then they throw the rest in the bin. And, you know, not that the $10 is the issue. It's more the fact that the food wastage actually gets to them more. Um, so, yeah, that's where I find, you know, having a meal that's, you know, complete. And, you know, I just I just recently actually, over COVID once again, um, I looked into designing meals for bariatric clients as well. So um, I do design meals for people who have just had the surgery, which is just more the meat process. And I also don't cook them. The chef does that because I'm not the chef. But yeah. I designed them nutritionally to go, okay, there's a lovely little, um, you know, smoked salmon or some Vietnamese meatballs and a bit of, you know, lime and dressing and all these sort of fancy stuff. But it is just the protein part that these, um, you know, bariatric clients do need. So, you know, that's specific to quite bariatric. But, you know, to other people who are trying to lose weight, um, yeah, just having a look at the meal and, and seeing whether it's going to suit you. But there definitely are some good ones. Um, like superfoods do a really good range as well um, in, the, in the freezer section for just the general weight loss and portion. Um, but, you know, it depends on if you're a male or a female as well. So some men need a lot of more protein than females. And sometimes those meals are based on a female size. So mm. if, you're, if you're a male, you know, it may not, may not work for you. Um, yeah, but definitely um, look into one. But, yeah, if anyone needs any help in deciding that, I mean, that's something definitely that dietitians can do and, and help them with. So, I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes to your blog on uh, frozen meals. And, yeah, um, great. Midlife weight gain. A lot of women mm-hmm. in their perimenopausal, menopausal complain of that extra kind of love layer around the abdomen. Um why does this happen? Yeah. 
yeah, you would see a lot of it in your practice. Um, definitely about that mid midlife weight gain, and it's very common. A lot of my clients are over the age of forty, um, and they do come in. They go, "Why have I put on weight? I'm eating the same thing I was eating five years ago, and I'm putting on weight." So the reason why it happens is, you know, because of uh, lovely hormone estrogen. And as we get older, our hormone estrogen reduces. So, and our lean body mass also reduces due to age. So, a lifestyle changes. So, a 55 year old lady compared to a 35 year old lady who's chasing four kids around the house, our lifestyle changes as well. So, the combination of all that, so, you know, losing muscle or burning fewer calories, um, it, and also uh, eating habits can change, then it's a bit of like a recipe for weight gain. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, we, we will put on, um, you know, extra weight. But there's one thing to also know is that when someone puts on a few kilos of extra weight, I try and explain to them that's actually okay. You know, a 60-year-old lady is not going to have the same weight as the 20-year-old girl because of estrogen and because of that lean body mass. And the average woman actually post-menopause will gain about 0.7 kilos a year. So just say it takes a few years to go through menopause, you know. So, you know, you may gain up to five kilos, you know, over the whole menopause sort of, um, you know, time in your life. And if it's five kilos, we go, okay, that's fine. We accept that. But if it starts becoming 20, 25, 30, well, then that's when we definitely look at, okay, there's more than menopause that's doing that, whether it's hormonal reasons, whether it's more the psychological reasons that we spoke about earlier. You know, we start looking at all those sort of things. Because, you know, we don't want someone putting on 20, 25 kilos because that's not good for their health and risk of diabetes and hypertension and hyperlipidemia and you know, certain cancers and heart disease, you know, we want to try and protect um, both male and females who are going through this. And But we do need to accept that there will be a little bit of weight gain that may be out of our control and we can only control what we can control. We can't control that five, but we may be able to control the other 20. So, yeah, but it is very common. And is it because women also become insulin resistant, relatively speaking, perimenopausally, menopausally, and... Um, for that reason, should they be wary, more wary of the types of carbohydrates they eat, not the carbs? Really? Because I also noticed in your course, which I also really like to see, was that you talked about how good carbs are for us, but it's about mm. choosing the type of carbohydrates that you eat. Can you talk yes. to us on that? Absolutely. Insulin resistance is a big thing when it comes to weight and to fat. So the more body fat you have, the more insulin resistance you will have. Um, and, you know, the less activity as well. So, yes, carbohydrates, we don't need to be scared of them, but we need to be mindful of them. You know, I have a lot of people, you know, who are carbophobic, you know, and just go, oh, tonic carbs, tonic carbs, tonic carbs. But you can't cut the most nutritious food item and our energy source out of our diet. But you can definitely be mindful of them. So there are healthier carbs, and we call them low glycemic carbohydrates. And these carbs are absorbed slowly in our body, therefore they don't increase our blood sugar as much, and also they keep us fuller for longer, which is why you know we can help, it can help control our weight. So I'll give you some examples of those. So, um, for example, this is everyone's heard of obviously everyone knows bread. Everyone knows white bread. Oh, that's bad. It's not that white bread is bad. It's just that it's a high glycemic index carbohydrate. And you'll have a piece, and then you'll want another piece, and then you'll have another piece. And before you know it, you've had half the loaf, and you're not really feeling that full. But if you change that to a real grainy bread, bread full of you know different you know seeds and things like that, 
since you had two, two pieces of bread, you're probably done. You know, you're probably quite happy with that. You know, so that's that glycemic index working. And another good example is like lollies. You, go, you can go to a poly shop and put a bag of lollies and not even know it's even happening. You know, you go and eat a loaf of grain bread and I'm pretty sure you're going to know what's happened. You'd be pretty mm-hmm. full. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's just choosing those right carbs that are more slowly absorbed. And, you know, one of the biggest things I find with people when they start giving up carbs is they give up dairy. Mm-hmm. Dairy is a really common one that people go, oh, I've cut out dairy because I'm trying to control my weight. And I'll go, oh, why, why, do you, why are you cutting out dairy to control your weight? And they'll go, well, because milk makes you fat. And I'll go, oh, well, not necessarily. In actual fact, the research shows that people who cut dairy out of their diet are more likely to struggle with their weight. So it's the complete opposite. And that's because dairy or milk or yogurt is actually a low glycemic index carbohydrate. So, and it's complete. So it gives us protein, it gives us low GI carb in it, and it also gives us calcium, which is a great mineral we need for our bone health. So, you know, it's, it's cutting that out. If you're cutting that out, you're putting something in to replace, and it's more likely to be the chocolate bar or more likely to be, you know, something sugary or something that's a high GI to fill it up. So, yeah, the glycemic index um, is super important, um, and choosing those low glycemic foods, carbohydrates, and having them in moderation still, it doesn't mean we go out and have, you know, tons and tons of high GI, low GI sort of foods. But you do need to eat carbohydrates in accordance to your physical activity. And that's where I suppose the dietitian can help you with that and how many would be suitable for you. I like to keep my bariatric clients um, having a low carbohydrate diet, but not super low. And it does depend on their activity level as well. So I do often get the question, how much should I have? A rough rule of thumb, I look at someone having between, say, 50 to about 80 grams of carbohydrate um, for the average, average, I'm talking about the average because it's so individual, <laughs> um, but yeah, trying to have about 50 to 80 grams if you're pretty inactive. But I've had people who have gone on to run marathons post-barriers, they've gone on to be triathletes. And I've had their cars up around 200 grams, mm. you know, and they're still really quite lean. Um, and that's because they're burning it and their body's needing it, their muscles are needing it. So it does depend on the individual. Um, but a rough rule of thumb, I, I, if someone's just doing your standard exercise a week, and when I say standard, like 30 minutes, three, four times a week, then I would have them on a lower carbohydrate diet, but not a no carbohydrate. So when you're looking at lower, if that's 50 to 70, you want to make sure those carbohydrates count. You don't want to have empty carbohydrates. And that's like things like lollies and chocolates and chips and, you know, even rice crackers and things like that where you're not getting a lot of nutrition for them. So I I make their carbohydrates count in a way. They're going to eat them. They're going to eat good ones. They're not going to eat ones that are rubbish. So that's where it comes to really tailoring, I suppose, what what you're doing in your life and getting that right so you don't feel like you need to be on a no-carb diet um, completely, So which is good. Another thing I learned by doing your course was uh, quick oats, uh, higher GI mm. compared to mm. the rolled conventional oats and that we should be re- eating rolled conventional oats, not the quick oats. Oh, that, absolutely. Oh, my God. The amount of times people say to me, oh, I'm doing quick oats. And I go, oh, why are you doing quick oats? And they go, oh, well, it's quick. And you know what? The other oats take the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happens with quick oats? Quick oats is actually a high glycemic carbohydrate. And this is where it can get confusing because then you go, 
but it's the same food as those traditional steel-cut oats. And I go, yes, but the machine has done all the pounding for you. Your stomach hasn't got to do any work. So that machine has made them all nice and dusty, so it's all kind of broken down for you. And the manufacturers have done it for you. And then you'll just pop it in the microwave and put it in your belly. Whereas when you have the traditional loads, your body's got to actually break those little, um, you know, fibers down and everything. So therefore it sits in your stomach for a bit longer. And therefore it is of the absorbed slower, which is why it has a low glycemic index. Yeah, but a very that's a very good that's a very good one. That's a very common one that I find. I would have to say ninety five percent of people would get that one wrong. And whenever I think of oats now, I always think of iron because I only recently found out through my experience um, as a, you know, kind of recreational runner that if you have an iron supplement close to oats, the I think the phytates in the oats reduce the iron absorption or bind it. Yeah, so it can reduce it, it can fight with it. Yeah, so um, but you know, it's like yeah, so it, it can, but I wouldn't use that as a reason not to have the oats um, because the oats are a really good soluble fiber as well, and you know you do like you do you do get such good nutrients from it. And if people, that's one of the things I do put into people's diet. Um, if they're going to have a healthy carb, then I like them to have that in the morning. I like them to have that. Um, as oats in particular, because of all the positive benefits um, with it. But yeah, so if you're on an iron supplement, and um, look, most clients who've had bariatric surgery um, are on iron supplements because their absorption level is is a lot lower. They're on lots of supplements actually, but um, in particular, iron. Um, so anemia is, is um, at high risk of anemia. So we do encourage them to have their iron supplement. But yeah, I tell them to have it. Um, yeah, after their meals, or half an hour away from their meals, or half an hour before is actually what I do say. Um, so, and that's for all, all of them. So there's no food interaction at all. One thing that I get upset about, as a doctor who likes to actually recommend multivitamins, minerals, etc., for patients, is when I hear people in general, not just other health professionals, saying, oh, don't bother with vitamins or supplements. You're just kind of wasting your time and your money. You're peeing it all out. Now, when you look at a bariatric patient, a patient who's had weight loss surgery, mm. how can you not look at minerals and vitamins? Uh, can you can you explain oh. to our audience why that's important for them? It's so important. So someone who's had um, a gastric sleeve surgery or any sort of bariatric surgery, what ha- your stomach is taken out, like if you've had gastric sleeve surgery, you're left with 20% of your stomach. Um, and that, your stomach is where you absorb your nutrients. So, you know, if you have 80% less absorption area, then of course you're going to need some sort of nutrient um, added in there. And when you've had bariatric surgery in particular, you can't fit the volume of food in anyway. And you can't wait five years for that because in five years' time, you know, this, you know, obviously you'd be falling apart. <laughs> so um, it, it's absolutely essential to be having vitamin supplementation if you've had surgery. And we actually say for lifelong anyway, not just for one or two years until you start eating a bit more. It's actually for lifelong. So, you know, the nutrients we do, we do find at risk, you know, iron and you know, B12, folate. Uh, zinc, vitamin A, and the thing is with um, with bariatric surgery, they ask that you need specialised vitamins. You can't have the standard ones off the shelf, and the reason being um, is because 
the ones off the shelf are used for people who are eating also, you know. So you do need specialised bariatric ones. So there's a few different companies that do them. Um, there's like BN Vitamins, BX Vitality, Nutritue. They're the three most popular ones. Um, so they're all really, really good ones, but they're all like nutritionally complete in a way. So there's like 18 milligrams of iron in the BN ones and it's got all your vitamin A, Bs, everything. So... Well, my clients actually even say to me when they forget to take their vitamins, they feel it, they notice it. Mm. So not be doing something, you know, they, I get that often, they feel low in energy and that's when I explain to them that, you know, that, you know, you need folate to even make your energy system work, you know, so that's why you would feel low, low in that, you know, it's like, oh, their hair starts falling out or their nails start going funny or their skin gets dry. All these are the side effects of not getting enough nutrients into your body. And then even when they're two or three years post, I still encourage them to have nutrients. And maybe they don't need to have two of the vitamins, but maybe one. Um, or maybe if we can get a bit more specialised and go, look, it looks like you need vitamin D and the calcium still. You need the iron still. Um, yeah, maybe you're getting enough of the B vitamins. Um, but, you know, very rare that I, I tell them, you know, they don't need those things. Um, I would, as a general rule, be saying you will need your vitamins to the end of the day, you know. So, um, but yeah, vitamin supplementation is required and different population groups have different needs. So, you know, people who um pregnancy as well, um, they need different vitamin supplementation. So we tailor it to that part and that time of their life. Um, bariatric will tailor it to that time in their life. Um, and, you know, just the general population who's trying to lose weight, you know, we will tailor it as well. And actually, I saw a study today, actually, only today that said that 20% in New South Wales, 20% of um, people are low in vitamin D. And then during winter, 40%. Mm. Said all the you time. Know, 40%. Mm. Yeah, that's not, that's not bariatric related. That's just general, you know. So it just shows you that, you know, definitely we, we you know, we are at risk anyway. And, you know, it's, there's no harm in having a vitamin. And, yes, maybe if you are having too much, you will wee it out. Um, so there, but, um, but if you, if you're not, um, and if you're not sure, that's when you just go and get your diet assessed and just go, well, what one do I actually need? And, um, and then your dietitian can actually point you in that direction, which is really handy. Now, hair loss, you mentioned hair loss. Now, oh, whoa, that's a big one. In your <laughs> course, you talk about how this is a common side effect complication of weight loss surgery. Can you talk to us more about that? Yeah, it's a very common one, and I say it's one of the biggest fears people, when I see them initially, they go, I'm really worried about losing my hair, Claire, what's going to happen to me? Um, so what happens, you, you do lose your hair, yes. Um, however, it's not, you shouldn't be losing clumps and clumps of it. What I find is that, you know, your hair cycle has three months. So in that first three months post-surgery, your body goes through some amazing changes. You potentially have lost 30 kilos. You know, your body's been under a lot of stress. You've just had a major surgery, like your whole stomach's been taken out. Like, you know, this is a major stress on your body. And then you're not getting all the nutrients that you can in, so that's why we have that supplementation. But, you know, and the BN vitamins um, in particular, they, you know, they, they have the right amount of zinc. They have the right amount of biotin. They have the right amount of of, you know, iron and all those sort of things to help it. But all that aside, even the best person who's taking their vitamins, having all the protein that's absolutely correct, everything, they're meeting all their limits, they will still have hair breakage. And that hair breakage um, is just due to the stress on the body. 
Um, and I like to explain to people, it's a bit like some people lose their hair when they have a baby. Like, you know, you see your hair start, you know, dropping out a little bit. You don't get clumps and clumps of hair. I mean, unless you have alopecia, but you generally don't get clumps and clumps of hair. Um, you know, it's the same with the surgery, that there's just a bit of stress on the body and that your hair will, um, I suppose, break off at around that three to probably five months. And then by six months, it should start being start to come back a little bit. And you see people have that little bump up at the front, you know, starting to, to come back. If you're losing clumps of hair, if you are losing big clumps, then absolutely you need to readdress your vitamins and you need to readdress your protein. The people that don't get enough protein in and the people that don't take their vitamins are at very high risk of their hair falling out. Um, whereas people that do get their vitamins and do get their right protein, they will still get hair breakage, but nowhere near as much, and their hair just comes back at around six months' time. So, um, so long term, I don't see a lot of hair issues long term. And funnily enough, I never get men complaining about it a lot. It's only women, especially women with dark hair. <laughs> Who can see it? <laughs> well, when it's long, thick, thick and luscious, you know, you, you exactly. really notice those bits coming out, and it can be scary, especially when it clogs mm. up your um, the drain in your shower. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, pregnancy weight loss surgery. Your um, yeah. this is your an interest of yours, obviously an interest of mine as well. Um, yeah. Tell us more about that. You know, if a woman has had this surgery, how mm-hmm. soon after this surgery can she fall safely pregnant? So we do recommend um, waiting at least 12 months, but preferably 18 months um, after the surgery before you um, fall pregnant. And look, they have done research, do we wait 12, do we 18? There's not a lot of difference in the outcome. However, that does come down to an age thing, I think. I think if you're, you know, 25, 26, and, you know, you've got a bit of time up your sleeve, and you probably would definitely should just wait 18 months. If you're 40, then I might go, okay, then we can probably work with this at around the 12 months, you know. So, but yeah, look, I have had some people fall pregnant earlier and it's really hard on them. They they just paid all this money to have this lovely surgery. They're really focusing on their weight. And then really at the end of the day, I, I, I just say to them, look, the baby, we have to look after the baby. I've got to try and get carbohydrates into you and weight loss will probably happen, but it might have to happen after the baby now, you know. And so I really, you know, it, it is a lot difficult if you fall pregnant in that three to four months because you're struggling. Like to give people an idea of how much someone would eat around four or five months post-surgery, I'm talking half a cup or less, so a third to a half a cup of food. You can't feed yourself, let alone feed a baby, a growing baby, you know. And because and we're so focused on getting your protein in because we don't want you to run your risk of malnutrition, we're not too focused on your carbs because that's the whole point that your fat will become your energy source. But when you're having a baby, your baby needs these carbs, you know. Your baby needs So I'm, I'm constantly telling them to drink juice and drink milk and try to get liquid calories in, which is the complete opposite of what you would recommend for bariatric surgery. So if they wait till they're 12 to 18, then, yes, they've lost their weight. And then, yes, now we can start focusing on the baby and getting a nice, well, healthy baby as well as keep the healthy mum. So, you know, we do definitely recommend that 12 to 18 months um, yeah, if possible. But, you know, accidents do happen. And a lot of the ones who did fall early, who I've seen, it is all generally an accident. And I think what people fail to realise that when they lose weight, um, you know, they, they're more fertile. Mm. You know, so we know that being a BMI above 35, you have a 30% less chance of falling pregnant. 
So when you lose this weight, you're one, you're more fertile. And these people go, I've been trying for years and I've never fallen, there's something wrong with me. And then they lose the weight and then they, you know, you know, just have an accident and then it happens. So that's one reason why it can happen earlier. The second reason is that when people start losing weight, they start feeling better about themselves as well. So there's a bit more, you know, a sex coming on. Mm, <laughs> so more energy, more energy for sex. There's more energy. There's more things happening. So, you know, they're having, they're having sex more often. So their chances are going to be, you know, obviously increased. So, you know, those sort of things happen as well. So, you know, if you, I always say to my clients, and it's always me that has this chat with them. Like, I don't know if the doctors do or not, but it's always me that, and but obviously a lot of my surgeons I work with are male as well. <laughs> so they're probably not thinking along those genders. But I always say to them, especially a girl that comes in around that 25 to 40 sort of age group, um, you can never be too sure because obviously, you know, people can fall at any age. But, yeah, I, I definitely always have a chat with them about their contraception and just say to them in their, like when they're thinking of having surgery, that pre-surgery, just say to them, you know, what's your, what are you doing for contraception? And if they say, oh, don't worry about it because I don't fall anyway, that's when I go, oh, no, alarm bell, you better start worried about it. Um, and I get them to go and speak to their GP and work out a suitable method, whether they, you know, put an IUD in or, you know, or, or you know, whatever, like a rod or whatever works for them. Um, I do encourage those sort of things rather than the actual pill because the pill, um, obviously, when you vomit, um, and sometimes that can happen post-surgery, um, you know, you might lose um, that protection. So, yeah, I do have that chat with them. And if they've already, sometimes they already have an IUD in, um, or something like that, so I just, yeah, I'd go, yeah, great, that's fantastic. Um, but I always have that chat and really tell them to wait that 12 to 18 months. You know, because some people have this surgery so they can fall pregnant. You know, that's the reason for having the surgery. So definitely, um, you know, that chat has to happen. And I just explain, you know, the reasons why and types of foods they'll be getting in. And, you know, we don't want a low birth weight baby. We don't want any risk of, you know, malformations or anything like that. So, you know, we, we do want to give everything the best and have healthy eggs and healthy baby and, you know, healthy mum and everything. So... Yeah, but it's um, it's, it's I suppose we eighty percent of people having this surgery is female, and then forty percent of them are in childbearing age age group. Mm. It's a lot of people. So eighty eighty <laughs> percent of people having weight loss surgery are female, and forty yes. percent of them of that yeah are, are in the reproductive uh, age group. Wow, and and a half yeah. of their doctors are probably not talking to them about contraception, which yeah. is a big failure. Yep, okay. absolutely. Mm. Yep, I mean, it's definitely some doctors that would be, but there, I, 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 I just have to chat regardless. I don't, you know, I don't even. Um, it's just one of my things. I just do with one of my tick boxes, um, and you know, sometimes I do it even like if, you know, if people who are forty, I'll still have that chat with, and even they've had four kids, and you know, they're done, and. Most of the time, that like those ones might say, "Oh no, I'm done. My husband's had to see it." I'm done. <laughs> you know, but I definitely do just just mention it, just let them know that their fertility, um, they will be more fertile post surgery, so they do need to just take precautions if they're not looking to have a baby um, in that in that initial stages. And yeah, just so just so they're aware and um, and everything. And if they do happen to fall pregnant, that's okay. But give me a bell, and we'll work through things and. We've definitely had a few little early pregnancies, um, and they've had healthy babies, like you know. But it's not something I would encourage, and and we do like I keep very tight control in regards to what they're eating, um, in regards to getting those that calorie calories in, 
getting those carbs in, getting the protein in. Um, I take them off the B and vitamins because they're a bit high in vitamin A and put them on other other vitamins. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very, it's a little bit more technical when it comes to um, falling pregnant um, post-bariatric. Um, but, you know, if they're three years post or four years post, then their, their outcome is fantastic and their, their risk um, of anything, you know, is no different to anyone else's risk. In actual fact, it's probably better than if they were overweight having the baby. So, um, you know, the risk of developing gestational diabetes and preeclampsia, all those sort of things are reduced by losing the weight and then having the baby anyway. So, um, yeah, so that's a really good thing. So... If they do fall pregnant earlier than 12 months, then complications to the baby, are they usually related to the fact that these women are not getting enough nutrients, the, the minerals and the vitamins yeah. that are required? So what we, we more high risk of neural tube defects, placental yeah. issues, growth restriction, anything else? Yeah, so yeah, definitely growth restriction is one of the biggest ones they've found. I suppose one of the problems is in this area is that it's very hard to get studies on pregnant women. It's very hard to, um, there's not a lot of research out there about, okay, the women that fall pregnant before, you know, like there's, one, there's not that many bariatric, and then two, there's not that many women who do it. And then three, testing on pregnant women. <laughs> it's not, mm-hmm. not, um, not very common. <laughs> so, you know, we look at what would happen um, if you didn't have the nutrients in. And, you know, there was a small little study. It was only about 39 participants, but it did show that, you know, iron, folate, calcium, B12, vitamin D, vitamin A, and choline as well, they just can't get those those in. So they do run that risk of very low um, nutrients. And then just with any pregnancy, we compare that back to any pregnancy. If you didn't get that, Folating, you know, then obviously you have the neural tube effects. You know, choline help for brain development. You know, so you know, if you're not getting that choline in, then that that's an impact as well. So, you know, I like to compare it to well to a, a normal pregnant person, not a postbiotic, because anyone who's pregnant, if these people aren't getting these nutrients in, then they run the same risk as, as someone else. So, um, who is pregnant? So, you know, it's getting it's going back to well, what what does a pregnant woman need, and how can this lady get this in now that she can't eat? <laughs> so, so you know, I, I yeah. see quite a lot of women post-bariatric surgery and they're not taking supplements. So they come and see me because they would like to fall pregnant. And I'm always baffled by that. And I, I've always questioned it. Why? Is it because they've just been lost to follow up? They haven't been told to take the supplements? Oh, they, there's poor compliance. What is it? Mm-hmm. I would I would hate to say, but I would I, – <laughs> I do feel like a follow-up is a big one because your your surgeon will be asking you that question, your dietitian would be asking you that question, and um, you know your GP should be asking you that question. So have they not been following up? And I think people get complacent as well. And yeah, it it, it, it surprises me as well. I do have clients that come in five years post surgery, and they've you know I go, well, what vitamins? Are on? Oh, nothing. Actually, this week I had a lady come in. She's twelve weeks pregnant mm. and she had surgery three years ago and I said to her what vitamins do you want I was expecting she would tell me and she goes I went off them <laughs> my doctor told me just to go on folate until I spoke to you mm. and I was, I was like oh Oh my God. <laughs> Let's get you on stuff. I was just, okay, I went through all the vitamins with her. I said, okay, we're in the second trimester now. Our iron requirements have gone up, you know, so we need to get back on these iron, you know. You're, and this lady had really bad, like she's been vomiting with morning sickness and everything. So she hasn't even had any food. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> 
wow. I just, uh, the poor lady, and she was, you know, she just was just so confused. She had no idea, and she was she was actually told to go off her vitamins and just stay on folate until. Um, so I think it's probably just that lack of knowledge that they do have, and um, and where I mean, who knows where she got her knowledge from? Where she read it somewhere on, you know, Facebook or something? Who knows? You know, I see a lot of that go on. Um, but yeah, definitely. Like I, I try and encourage all my pregnant women to see dietitians anyway, let alone ones who have had, you know, um, bariatric surgery. So yeah, it's um, it's amazing, isn't it? But it, yeah, no, it happens. <laughs> So Claire, should any dietitian know this though, or, or or should these patients be specifically seeing someone like you who is a bariatric dietitian? Yeah, look, I think if you've had bariatric surgery, you should be seeing a bariatric dietitian. Bariatric nutrition is very specialised, and look, I employ a few dietitians who work with me, and you know, I just do training after training. And these are girls who've got 15 years' experience as being a dietitian, you know, so they're very educated. They have great skills in so many areas, but they're learning about bariatric nutrition because it's so unique and it's so different. So yeah, and I know I know a lot of dietitians who don't even actually see bariatric clients because it's so unique. They just go, mm. you know what, not my area. So it's niche. I don't specialise mm. in it. It's a niche market, yeah, mm. absolutely. And, you know, I've, look, I've been, I've been dieting for about 20 years and I've only really been focusing on barrier nutrition for about 10. Um, and, you know, the what I've learned myself and what I didn't know, like, you know, oh, my God, you know. So, and I've had to explain that to my clients as well. Like, I, I say to them, I said, you know, Dietitians don't even know these answers. It's so specialised, you know. And, and we see, like, I would see 50 clients a week who have had bariatric surgery. Mm. And, you know, I'm seeing 50. Not that I've had it personally myself, but I know what they should feel like. I know, you know, what, what they should be up to and nutritionally what they should be getting in. When you're had surgery, you're one, you know, and you, you're only going on yourself, you know. So not only do you not have that education in nutrition, but also you, you haven't done this surgery before. And that's why I created that online course. I thought, well, if people can't access or can't get there, at least at least be be aware of what you should be knowing. You know? mm-hmm. um, and then you can follow up with a with a dietitian specialising in the area. Yeah, but it is a very it's a very unique market, um, and people just um, yeah they really got to know their stuff and and know how to counsel someone through it. I suppose is the other thing. It's not just knowing the numbers; it's actually knowing how to counsel the mindset behind someone who's having mm-hmm. this surgery. Because um, it makes a big impact on on their outcome, not just giving them a diet and saying, "Hey, see ya." Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's actually getting them to put that in practice in their lifestyle um, is a big one. Now, in pregnancy, women have a special test called a glucose tolerance test, and you mm. talk about this in your course as well. Uh, and that women who've had bariatric surgery tend to or can come across problems with this test. Can you explain to us why? Mm. So it depends. It depends how far past their surgery they are. So when you have a glucose um, tolerance test, a test for you know gestational diabetes, you have to drink you know glucose. You have to drink you know fifty mils of glucose, um, and it it can, it can make them feel very very sick. The reason being is they can get what you call dumping syndrome when they have too much sugar. People who have had surgery, and this is probably more relevant than people who have had the bypass surgery over the sleeve surgery. However, I still have my sleeve people who experience it, and they don't have the stomach acid to, um, I suppose, break down that glucose. And so, therefore, if they get nauseous, they can get diarrhea, they may even get vomiting. Um, so, if you're feeling a bit sensitive to 
you know, sugar, essentially, or, or sugary things, um, then we can do other things to still check that you've had, like, to still check your, your blood glucose. And your doctor or your nurse or, um, or anyone you've seen, even your dietitian, if you're seeing the barrister dietitian, would um, get you to do some blood glucose monitoring over over a week or something instead. So we can just get you to test your blood sugars, more or less, um, with a pinprick, rather than get you doing the, 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 the fasting and then have the glucose load. Um, yeah, so the reason being they just can't tolerate it um, and, yeah, the side effects of it is, you know, yeah, not very pretty. So, yeah, there is other ways. <laughs> and look, but if someone's five years post-surgery, they're probably fine. They probably wouldn't have a problem with it. Um, it's just fine to do fall on that 12-month day. Um, you know, that's when they're more likely to have to have the problem. And obviously you've got great bariatric services that you offer. Is there anything else that you offer as part of, of your uh, business? Um, so, yeah, I see people, I see people for a range of different things, and barrister surgery is definitely one of my areas. Um, so, I do, you know, I look at body composition. So, I have body composition machines that can measure um, measure people's, you know, fat and muscle. Um, I also have the online training, so to help people all around Australia, more or less, who can log on, do the training at their own time, redo it, re- and keep redoing it and going over it. Um, and obviously then we can do telehealth. So I do offer telehealth. You don't have to live in Orange or Bathurst or Dubbo to, to see me. Um, telehealth is, especially with COVID, that's been boomed essentially. So I can chat to you, um, yeah, via that way. Um, and so yeah, there's that course. And then I do do frozen bariatric meals. So I have developed, um, just my own range of frozen meals. Um, at the moment I'm just, um, delivering to Bathurst and Orange and Dubbo and, um, Wagga. I will be delivering to Wagga as well. Um, but, you know, it's just a logistic thing at the moment. Then hopefully we can come to Sydney and um, and deliver to clients there. And so the meals, I really find the meals are more beneficial for people in that first 12 months. I think they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're great for that. They come with protein powder. It takes the thinking out of it while you can do the learning. Then hopefully by the time you're 12 months, uh, I have or one of my team members or a dietitian who specialises in there has actually provided you with the skills and the education um, to take you through for the rest of your life. So, you know, you don't have to stay on, you know, pre-prepared meals for the rest of your life, but it might just give you a helping hand while you can start the learning curve. So, yeah, so I offer all those services and, you know, I'm a sports dietitian as well, so I see a lot of people um, in that sort of area as well um, and eating disorders. Um, I do cover that well because I do feel that, you know, eating disorders, whether you're overeating or undereating, it's disordered eating, you know, and it does impact on your body and your body composition and your health. Um, that's why, you know, I do focus on that whole area of disordered eating pattern. So I can see a couple of other podcasts coming up with you then on uh, eating disorders and sports. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very common. <laughs> uh, if a patient did see you remotely, uh, say you're obviously in Orange and I send a patient to you who lives in Sydney, what um, what kind of testing then would you organise for them in Sydney to assess their body composition? Would you send them off for an in-body scan somewhere or a DEXA yeah. scan? Yeah, we can do DEXA. Um, there are a few dietitians in Sydney who I do know of who do have the in-body, so I could refer you to them to just get the scan done. Um, and all over Australia, I've actually worked part of a um, Nutrition Plus, which is like a women's health sort of group of people who focus on um, fertility and nutrition. And um, a lot of those dietitians around Australia do have um, embodies in their offices. So uh, I can definitely refer to anywhere you live. Um, yeah, so we can definitely do that. Yeah, or, 
or Adapter, just at your local um, XJ place as well. Um, you can get that done there. And then, yeah, we would talk by telehealth. I like to see people. Um, I mean, I do do phone consults, and I think they're great. And I do plenty of them, actually. But, you know, seeing people as well, you can really, um, I suppose I read a lot of body language, and I think you can do that very well through either Zoom or my system actually has a telehealth link, so they don't even need to even have Zoom. I can just email them a link, and they can just press click. There's no downloading involved. Um, So my actual database that I I work on um, actually has that um, built in. So, yeah, so it's very very simple to, to do those sort of things these days, which is great. Claire, I'd like to ask you some more personal questions if you've got time. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, which people in your life have been your biggest inspirations until now? Oh, that is such a, such a good question, isn't it? I've had a lot of – look, my family is very inspirational to me, like my husband and my, and my children. Um, but you know what? I know this is going to sound corny, but – my clients are very inspirational <laughs> to me. Like, I just see what they go through mm. and the amazing results. Like, I had a lady in today, 196 kilos. She weighed in today at 97. Wow. And she is amazing. You, you would walk. That's a 100 kilogram weight loss. Yep. 100 kilogram weight loss in 10 months. And can I say, only four kilos of that was body fat. The rest was all fat. Uh, so, sorry, four kilos was muscle. The rest was all fat. How amazing. She was so inspirational to me today. I just thought, and she has, she's been very diligent with her appointments. She's done everything. And she's just, I, I just, I just, it brings tears to my eyes because I just, you can hear me getting excited in my pocket because she was just this amazing girl. And I just thought, oh, wow. You know, the things you've changed in your life, what you've learned, the lifestyle, like, you know, her cooking stuff, everything has changed. She's mm. just turned her life upside down. And she goes, Claire, I even did a little bit of a run today. And I said, <laughs> you did it. And she said, I did. And I said, where did you run? She said, oh, just a few minutes down the street and all the neighbours were looking. And she was so impressed with herself. Oh, that's and amazing. I thought, wow. Yeah, so my clients really are inspirational. They keep me going. That's fantastic. <laughs> and has she uh, lost all the weight I'm sure she's lost all the weight plus more, but is she still losing weight? Yeah, her goal, um, well, my original goal for her was 90, but I think she'll probably get to about an 86 or 87 because um, of the lifestyle changes she's made, yeah. Fantastic story. How about favourite books? Do you have any favourite books you could share with us? Oh, one of my all-time favourites, um, A Fortunate Life by Albert B. Casey. Do you know that one? Yes, I've heard of it. I've not read it though. Oh, it's a great book. I've even made my kids read it just recently. Um, it's a really great book about a man whose life struggles and, you know, he just went out and just did it. And, you know, it's, it's so, it's, it's inspirational as well to, to see a person who was, you know, not born into the most affluent sort of, um, place and, you know, didn't really have a mum and a dad who care for him and, and then you said to get on and do it, you know, and it's really good to see that, you know, it doesn't matter where you're from, what you do, um, you know, you can change things. There's always there's always that change there. Yeah, and I'm even getting my kids to read it because they're like going, oh, wow, you know, just to make them realise that, you know, they're born mm. in a lovely house. <laughs> <laughs> to <laughs> oh, be appreciative. Like, you, know, you could be born like that, you know. But, yeah, it's really inspirational. Is that an Australian book? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's about a guy who actually was brought up in Western Australia. Yeah. Okay, yep. And songs that make you happy. I'm a gag, and you're going to laugh at me, but I love the Bengals. The Bengals. 
the bangles. I know what is that. And then I love um, Taylor Swift's Raha by Bonnie Tyler. <laughs> they're, they're like, that's when I'm, sit, I'm sitting there with a group of friends and that comes on. I can't help myself to get up and sing. <laughs> very daggy. There's, there's a song that um, Manic Monday is one of my favourite songs and Prince yeah. wrote that for the Bengals. Um, yeah. It's a great song. Your yeah, dream collaboration. Oh, I have so many dreams. <laughs> My dream one day is to, you know, look, I love helping people. That's why I became a dietitian. And, you know, my dream one day is to, I suppose, you know, just have as many people as I can and, you know, and even give my skills to other dietitians so they can help as many people as they can. Um, and obviously, you know, I've got three children as well. So, you know, I obviously have dreams for them as well. And, you know, so everyone wants to grow up healthy and, and to make sure they reach their dreams. So I have, you know, I, I'm very careful of getting that life balance um, with work and life and, um, and, and it's always in the back of my mind. So, you know, I, my dream is to, I suppose, help people at the same time, not lose sight of what's important to me, which is my family. Um, so, yeah, just looking at that, that bigger picture as well. And my last question is top tips for being the best dietitian you can be. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, my top tip, listen, 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 listen. If you listen to someone's story, because everyone's story is different, and as a dietitian and, you know, not just as a clinical dietitian but also as a, you know, a private practice dietitian and a dietitian who does a lot of counselling in those sort of areas, you have to listen to someone's story and the whys and the why nots and, you know, you can't assume um, I'm not about judgment. I'm not about blaming them for what they've done or how they are or what they look like or how much weight they have. It's not about a blame game. It's actually about being non judgmental and helping them get out of it, you know. So, you know, giving that practical advice um, is one of the top tips of being the best dietitian for me because there's no point printing up some fantastic sort of beautifully, you know, diet that maybe I might follow or maybe I gave to someone yesterday, you know, if it's not going to work in that person's life. So about listening to their story, story, being non-judgmental and then giving that practical advice to meet my goals as a dietitian but also their goals in life. So you know, having that all joined together is definitely um, makes you a better dietitian. Awesome. Claire Ward, thanks for um, sharing with me your course, the bariatric course. I've really appreciated learning um, about all of that and, and I'm going to share that with lots of my patients and thank you for talking to us today. It's my pleasure and thank you so much for having me. It's great to be able to talk to people um, and let them know that there is help out there if you need it and you don't need to be suffering and if you're struggling in any part with or without bariatric surgery, then definitely seek help. Um, you know, put your hand up, that's the first point of call, and then we can go from there. But yeah, if we don't know, well, we can't help you. So yeah, definitely seek help if you need help. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Claire Ward. Share this episode, please, with someone if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel, and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny tabulous. <laughs> <laughs>